As far as I'm concerned, as long as that same respect and recognition is not shown toward every one of our people in this country, it doesn't exist for me. And during the few moments that we have left, we want to have just an off-the-cuff chat between you and me, us. We want to talk right down to earth in a language that everybody here can easily understand. There's no doubt that right now the world is seeing what many are calling a reckoning on race. And in the language of Malcolm X, chickens do indeed come home to roost. Meaning that the violence that you enact on other people will surely come and meet you in your backyard one day. And notwithstanding the irony of me quoting Thomas Jefferson when he said, Indeed I tremble for my country when I reflect that God is just and that his justice cannot sleep forever. So joining me today, I'm actually super excited for this episode, guys. This is someone I've come across on the internet, in interviews, and I've been quite inspired, actually. So I'm very happy to have Dr. Adam Elliott Cooper with me today. How are you, man? Very well, very well. Very happy to be here. Thank you. Thank you for joining me and taking your time. My first question initially then is, I think a lot of the time we speak about race is very much in the American context. And I think it's important that we, especially on the back of um, the Small Act series, I think it's very important that we have a race critique or race-based conversation rooted in the British context. So first and foremost, when speaking about the British context, what do you think are the main issues when it comes to race and understanding race and dealing with racism? So I, I think that, yeah, we do have, certainly have a problem in the UK with um, a, a lot of British people in particular, I think, feeling far more comfortable talking about racism as something which is an American problem, right? Mm -hmm. And creating the idea that over in, in Britain, you know, we don't really have a problem with racism. Uh, it's, you know, we're mainly a class-based society and that racism is this thing that maybe exists on the peripheries of society and has only really arisen as a problem for Britain uh, since the Windrush generation, right? When significant mm -hmm. numbers of people from Britain's colonies and, and former colonies began to migrate in significant numbers in the post-war period. And I think that we can begin to, I think that this, the protests of the summer of this year, the, the reckoning, as you described it in your introduction, yeah. has tried to force Britain to rethink that misinterpretation of racism. Because, of course, mm -hmm. racism is a very British phenomenon and goes back much further uh, than the Windrush generation. Because, of course, for most of Britain's history, it's been an empire. And being an empire meant that racial governance, racial hierarchies, forms of racial capitalism, forms of racial control over people has been really fundamental to Britain, to Britain and its power for as long as Britain's been around. Right? I mean, Britain was founded in 1707 when it already had colonies. It was already engaging in the transatlantic slave trade and the colonization mm -hmm. of Africa and the Americas and parts of South Asia and what have you. And so the legacies of that imperial ex expansion um, and that colonial governance live with us today, um, whether it be um, policing and immigration and prisons, or whether it be mm -hmm. housing and employment and healthcare, or within our education system and our social services. In every sphere of public life, those racialized legacies of centuries of imperialism continue mm -hmm. to plague the way in which uh, society is structured and reproduces the ways in which people are differently exploited, people are different, people differently experience state power and violence, and the ways in which people are dehumanised across popular culture. 
Absolutely. I, I'm, in, I'm totally in agreement with you. So, I mean, you mentioned like the few areas when it comes to the, the judiciary system and the housing system when it comes to, you know, how black people experience when they go to experience like doctor surgery, etc. So kind of pinpointing the, and me playing a kind of a proxy, what do you say to those people kind of say, it's just purely a class issue, nothing to do with race? I guess there's two things to think about here. The first thing that we we should probably say to that is that we have to look at the fact that the class system in Britain is racialized. Right, the working mm-hmm. it's not a coincidence that there are no middle class black areas in Britain, mm-hmm. and that the working class is a multicultural working class, and we can see yes. the ways in which therefore race and plays really fundamental roles in exploiting people differently based on how they're categorized racially. Yes. But I think the other important thing is that this is global as well, right? And and the yep. global racialized hierarchies, which see parts of the global South, Africa, South Asia, Latin America, etc., uh, lower down the global order of power and resources and what have you, is reflected in our, this in the kind of domestic order. Mm-hmm. And I think the other thing I'll say, maybe if this was an argument being made by a leftist, is that yeah. Capitalism has never existed without racism. I mean, depending on mm-hmm. how you interpret it. I mean, people like Cedric Robinson, who wrote um, yes. Black Marxism, argues that forms of racial hierarchy existed before capitalism, and capitalism therefore and utilised racism in order to reproduce its power. Right? It was able to, I, rather than Marx, who said that capitalism makes us more similar, by making people workers in the same kinds of factories doing the same kinds of jobs. What Cedric Robinson argued is that capitalism actually seeks to make us different and differentiate between different types of workers who are racialized differently, who are maybe gendered differently, who have different immigration mm. spaces, all of these types of things. And capitalism needs to differentiate and categorize different workers differently in order to differently exploit them I mean, in different circumstances and in different types of ways in order to reproduce its power. And so in order for us to understand yeah. capitalism, we have to understand this. Absolutely. And I think, I feel like I've always said to a lot of... Um you know, I'm a lot of leftist friends that, yes, I think Marx's critique definitely does allow for the introduction of race in his critique. I think it didn't go far enough. And I feel that's when leaning on the black Marx tradition becomes so kind of important for us and imperative us in our kind of critique of society and an arrangement of the societies. And kind of shifting gears then, when speaking of the government and, and the kind of... Um, the MPs in which we have in the, you know, the Tory front bench and then they spout speak of, well, BLM is a Marxist movement. You know, the term Marxist has become a trigger word, hasn't it? You know, BLM is a Marxist movement and critical race theory teaches white privilege as an uncontested fact. And, you know, you hear the railing against all these things. Does this come as a surprise to you? I wouldn't say it comes as, as a surprise to me necessarily because I think there is a relatively long history of this type of, I guess it's often called red baiting during the Cold War, in which we, yes. in which we saw uh, people who so, associate with what we might consider to be revolutionary movements, whether they be associated with Soviet Union or anti-colonialism, anti-racism, being identified as being as being fundamentally linked with some kind of sinister authoritarian cultic institution. Yeah. And so I think we should be unsurprised, therefore, that this type of yeah, effectively red baiting, framing 
Marxism in this very one-dimensional way, associating it with the horrors of Stalinism and that particular aspect of the Soviet Union, associating it with with authoritarianism rather than equality, associating it with an anti-democratic sentiment rather than an initiative which seeks to democratise our economy. That is something that is pushed into great effect by both the mainstream press and mainstream politicians and other sections of, of power within our society. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, the thing is, uh, what I kind of want to just introduce into the conversation at this point then, I know it's uh, kind of a subject area in which you've been heavily involved in. When speaking of like how black people are brutalized by the police, I think many of the times we root our conversations in America and we root our conversations with the atrocities that we see are all too often captured on video and, and made viral. In your, in your kind of understanding and research of the topic, is it as bad for black people in the UK as it is in America in terms of how we encounter the law agency or police? I think we should be unsurprised that the racial violence in a set economy like the United States is more intense than the uh, racial violence in one of the old centres of empire like Britain or somewhere else in Western Europe. Yeah. But I think what we should really ask ourselves is how, how useful is that question? How helpful is that question? Would it have been helpful mm. in the period of chattel slavery to identify the fact that uh, slavery um, is far more violent and destructive in Brazil or Jamaica than it is in Texas or, or New Orleans? Would that have been a helpful question to ask? I don't know if it really would necessarily. I don't think that abolition should have been prioritised in Brazil or Jamaica simply because the mortality rate was so much higher and the Absolutely. so much more acute. What, what we have, what, what's a far more useful question, and this is a question a lot of abolitionists were asking, well, how are these, how are these different systems of racial slavery connected? And how can mm. the different movements of resistance against these systems of racial slavery identify these connections in order to strengthen their resistance? And I think that we should be asking comparable questions today about forms of racial violence in different parts of the world. Absolutely, absolutely. And I kind of like speaking on what's in like popular discourse today. Can you break down for our listeners, defund the police and what they'll look like or mean in the UK context? So the campaign to defund the police emerges from a movement which identifies the fact that over the last 30 or 40 years in Britain and in the United States, the prison population has uh, expanded enormously. Here in Britain, mm-hmm. the prison population has uh, almost doubled uh, since the 1980s. The, women, the, prison, the women, women's prison population has more than doubled. We're incarcerating over twice as many women today as we were in the 1980s. And wow. people are going to jail for more and more spurious reasons. And despite mm-hmm. this, we haven't had a significant improvement in community safety. We haven't had a significant increase in safety within our society. And so what defunding the police argues is that the expansion of police and prison power has two fundamental problems. The first Mm -hmm. problem is that it doesn't improve public safety. But the second problem is that it actually brings more violence into marginalised communities, actually brings more suffering. Wow. And so what we instead need to be thinking about are ways in which we can prevent the kinds of social problems that arise that lead to people going to prison in the first place. So if you look at our prison population... If you just sort of interject that that point, sorry, when you mean by bringing more violence into communities, could you expand on that point for me, please? Yeah, sure. So let's think about it. We can think about bringing more violence in in maybe two broad ways. The first okay. is the is is the suffering that prison brings upon people, right? Incarcerating mm-hmm. people. If we look at our prison population, you're 
our prison population is over hugely overrepresented with peak by people who have experienced mental health problems or experienced child abuse wow. domestic violence yeah. people who've experienced homelessness or joblessness people who have experienced addiction problems or school exclusion all of these types of issues which are exacerbated, all these kind of social problems which are exacerbated by being incarcerated, right? These social problems aren't dealt with, right? The experience of mental health or trauma or violence or, or destitution isn't dealt with through, isn't effectively ameliorated through incarceration. Mm -hmm. It's actually exacerbated and that harm is worsened. So that's one way in which the police and prison system increases harm. But of course, the other way in which the police and prison system increases harm are the day-to-day -day indignities of policing, the stops and searches, yeah. the arrests, the questioning, the raids on people's homes, the harassment, the violence, the brutality, all of these things as well. And so what defunding the police therefore... So go ahead. Did you want to ask a question? No, 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 no. I was going to ask, do we understand defunding the police here also as a means to abolition? Yeah, I'll, I'll get on to that. So... What defunding the police therefore argues is that if we make the social investments within our society that enable people to access secure housing and gainful employment, reduce school exclusion yeah. and, and not fail our young people within the school system, provide addiction services and services for people um, who have experienced child abuse or domestic violence, improve our youth services for our most vulnerable young people. All of these types of social investments, then we can prevent the, help to prevent the social conditions which lead to people coming into contact with the police in the first place. And this is what we call an abolitionist reform. So an abolitionist reform is a reform which brings us closer to a vision of a world in which police and prisons are obsolete. And the way, the reason it's called an abolitionist reform is because we are eroding society's reliance on police and prisons to solve social problems and empowering communities and, the, and, our, and our social services to ameliorate and prevent those social problems from arising in the first place. Thank you so much for that beautiful explanation. I mean, I've often said publicly on, on, on this platform previously that for the last 30 years in the UK, we look at policing budgets have increased. We look at bobbies on the beat have increased. Police, actual amount of police on in the force have increased and, and crime has not been reduced. It's consistently risen for the last 30 years. So naturally, the approach we're taking isn't working just by, you know, numbers that we have. So I think, you know, I think it's time that we get serious about talking about defunding and abolition and kind of a reimagination of how we ensure public safety. And kind of shifting gears then, talking about the British context again, we see that there are many, I want to tackle two things. First being the phenomenon of the people of colour acting as gatekeepers or, you know, the black Tory phenomenon or the black person of colour phenomenon. And also the kind of people, you know, we get nowadays people come on Good Morning Britain as talking heads and, you know, they're touted as black people are not a monolith and we don't all think the same. I'm just a free black person. And normally this person is kind of speaks to white supremacy sentiment or far right sentiment. So I kind of want to kind of dissect both of those phenomena if you, if you, if you wouldn't mind. Okay, I think we have to remember, and I think it's really important for us to remember, that this phenomenon of black people being put up as spokespeople or as put into positions of power um, that reproduce racism, that reproduce racial yeah. hierarchy within our society, is not a new phenomenon. Absolutely. One of the most maybe uh, clear ways in which this has been analysed was through the work of a, a political theorist called Franz Fanon, who wrote a book yes. of the Earth in the early, early 1960s. And what he says in The Wretched of the Earth is he, Fennel is looking at 
post-colonial countries in decolonizing Africa, right? Africa is mm -hmm. decolonizing, going through the process of decolonizing during this period. And what he identifies is that during the period of decolonization, Britain is doing a diversity drive. France is doing mm -hmm. a diversity drive. Portugal is doing a diversity drive. What they're doing is they're training and educating um, civil servants. They're training judges, lawyers, politicians, police officers, teachers to reproduce the same kind of economic and political and social systems that existed during formalised colonialism. And what, what Fanon says, and I'm kind of paraphrasing here, is that he calls them this, this new bourgeoisie believes what they read in, in European textbooks until they become not the mirror image of the European bourgeoisie, but their caricature. And so I think we should be unsurprised, therefore, that this quite similar process where people who have been educated in the British education system, trained as British universities, come to come to internalise the assumptions of the British state, come to internalise mm. the assumptions of, of racial hierarchy and our racialized system and therefore reproduce them. And these are as effective to British power as they were during the period of colonisation. Today, um, where we see, as you mentioned, black and Asian politicians or journalists or commentators, yeah. have you. Are so would you say it's very deliberate then? Would you say it's very deliberate? I think that on the one hand, it's clearly deliberate that I don't think well, I don't think it's a coincidence that a black politician or conservative politician will be chosen to defend the Windrush scandal, as, as has been the case yep. um, in, recently. But of course, this is a system which reproduces itself. And so if mm. we already have a system, which a, an education system and a, and, um, and a work and a, a political sector and industry, which values, which rewards ideas and thinking and work, which reproduces racial hierarchy, then we should be yeah. unsurprised, I think, therefore, that it isn't simply white people who are rewarded for reproducing racial hierarchy. Abs mm, absolutely, absolutely. And kind of shifting gears again then. Sorry, I just I know I'm I'm covering so much because I'm really, really, really excited to have you. Thank you so much once again. The term BAME, so in kind of popular, you know, Twitter discussions, there's a whole debate on whether we need to drop the BAME label and stop using it. And people, black people, some black people, sorry, are saying that the BAME label actually does more harm than good for black causes. And then, you know, naturally when Pretty Patel comes out and spouts something, spouts some nonsense, they'll say, see guys, this is why we need to drop black. BAME. So in your understanding of the British context, do you think we should drop the term BAME and does it help or kind of hurt the black cause? So BAME isn't really a term that I use, but I'm yet okay. to really come across any of the kind of any of the critiques on Twitter that you mentioned particularly convincing. I mean, yes, we've okay. seen Priti Patel come and say institute policies which are very harmful to black people, therefore BAME is uh, therefore apparently a very unhelpful term. But we also see a lot of black politicians yeah, uh, come onto the television and defend the Windrush scandal. So should we therefore drop the term black because there are black people who clearly are not uh, acting yep, yep. in the interest <laughs> of the majority of black people? No. So I think therefore what we need to instead think about is the fact that black should be understood as a set of politics. Um, mm. Somebody racialized as black doesn't mean that they they engage in a form of black politics, right? And if we understand black politics as a set of politics which emerges in the world in the 1960s, right? Before the 1960s, no one really identified as black. In yeah. the 1960s, and it's part of a, a radical tradition of uh, black people resisting racism, 
racial capitalism, imperialism, colonialism, and what have you, yeah. then I think that is a more useful way of understanding why these terms are, why the, a, a useful, a better way of understanding these different terms. Um, the, the reason that I don't use the term BAME isn't because it simply lumps a large number of kind of differently racialized people into one category. It's because it's simply the language of of bureaucrats, right? BAME is a term. Uh, exactly. No, I don't, I don't think none of us who are who are falling in that category ever say, "Hey, I'm a BAME person." <laughs> no, 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 it's the language of the state. It's the language of bureaucrats. But I haven't really heard a, a coherent critique of, of BAME as something which emerges from the state and therefore something which we shouldn't reproduce because the state is the primary reproducer of racism. And I mean, I think a, lo- a lot of black people complain about the term BAME being used because they're saying it, it conflates the black experience with the Asian experience. But yeah. If we look at outcomes when it comes to employment and housing and education, black people and Bangladeshi and Pakistani people actually have far more in common than Bangladeshi and Pakistani people have with Indian people. And so yep. the real inequality that exists within the BAME category isn't between black people and Asian people. It's between Bangladeshi and Pakistani people and Indian people. Yep. And so Bangladeshi and Pakistani people should, by such a logic, be complaining about the term South Asian because it doesn't help to explain their experience at all because the experience of a, a Bangladeshi person living in East London is very, very different to a lot of people of Indian heritage who may be members of the Conservative Party who are quite who you've mentioned yeah. in this podcast, for instance. <laughs> but so if we're doing a BAME politics, though, does that do you feel like that kind of slows or kind of damages the black cause in any way? I don't really know what a BAME politics is, but I guess it's often been interpreted as... So, so if, I, if I expand on that, then, sure. let's, say I expand, let's say, for example, we spoke about how the incarceration rates of, let's say, Pakistani Bengalis and, and black people, for example, are, are quite similar. Or let's say, for example, we find that black people are more likely to be stopped and searched, for example, and Pakistani people, and so, so are South Asians, however, not to the same degree. Or let's say exclusion of kind of ca- children of Caribbean kids for or Caribbean kids, for example, Afro Caribbean kids, is a similar rate to kind of Pakistani and Bengali kids. So my point is that do we need to have a politic that is more focused on the black issues and deal with black issues first before we come together as a BAME category, or can we deal with it since since they had such a massive overlap and they're only kind of varying in degrees as opposed to the issues are still the same. So I think this connects to your earlier question, which was about whether racism is worse in the United States than it is in Britain. Simply mm. because racism is racial violence is more pronounced in the United States than it, than it is in Britain doesn't necessarily mean that we should all be rallying behind people in the United States and then we'll deal with racism in Britain as a kind of second priority, right? We should therefore deprioritize yeah. it. What's, what's a far more useful question is, how are these different forms of racism connected? How is anti-Muslim racism connected to anti-Black racism? And, mm. and how is racism towards South Asian people connected to racism towards people of African heritage, right? How are these different these yep. forms of racism connected? And once we, see, once we identify the ways in which these different forms of racism are connected, I think we'll be in a far better way to address both of them. And I think that addressing racism as a, in solidarity with other oppressed groups is the most effective and perhaps only way Absolutely. in which we can overthrow the systems of racialized hierarchy that exist within the world. Absolutely. Dr. Adam, you're spitting, you're spitting today, you're spitting today. <laughs> My kind of final question I'm going to throw at you then is, if you're speaking to, I think you kind of answered it, but kind of, if you're speaking to a young black person who who listening to this podcast and they kind of want to find their, world, their way in the world of politics and find their politics, 
what route should they take? Should they become a Marxist? Should they become a black nationalist? Should they become an Afro-pessimist, Afro-futurist? What would you say to a young black person trying to find their way in the world of politics and find, you know, flirting with different ideologies? Where, does she, where should they go? Okay, well, I'm not going to tell people how to think. All I, I, all I can tell people is what I think. And, yeah. you know, I've been seduced by black nationalism and Afro-pessimism in the past. Um, and Africanism. Um, and it can be quite a, yeah, a seductive uh, areas of thought and, and of, of seeing the world. But for me personally, I think it's fundamental to understand racism as something which is, own, which is fundamentally linked to the system of exploitation, of capitalist exploitation. And what I mean by that is that capitalism is the way in which racism becomes material. It's the way in which racism becomes real, right? right? No one can... There's a really interesting quote from Kwame Ture, slightly Karl Marx, yeah. who says that if a white man wants to lynch me, that's his problem. But if a white man has the power to lynch me, then it's my problem. And it's racism that makes the white man want to lynch me. But it's capitalism that gives the white man the power to lynch me. Right. So and what he means by that is that whilst racism is the ideology or the, the system of governance or control that produces racial hierarchies, it's capitalism, right, the control over resources of land, of states that enables that racial hierarchy to be imposed and to be reproduced. And so understanding both of, the, of, of racism and capitalism needing each other in order to operate, I think is fundamentally important. And that's why I'm a black box. I would identify as a black Marxist. Thank you so much for the, for your time. I think you really, I mean, it's a heavy topic in such a short amount of time. I do hope to have you again sometimes. Guys, you are listening to The Malcolm Effect with Mamadou. Please like, comment, subscribe, be that on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or on YouTube. I will post Dr. Adam's socials in the description of this episode. And lastly, I think you have, I read you have a book coming out soon. Is that right? Uh, yeah, so uh, May 2021, Black Resistance to British Policing, out with Manchester University Press. Awesome. Okay, guys, please keep an eye on that and make sure you, you know, cop that book. I know I certainly will. I hope I can get a signed copy. <laughs> Take care, doctor. Take care. Thank you.